So my mother-in-law was up yesterday and she was saying, oh, so what are you going to preach on? I said, oh, we're doing this series in Ephesians. And Sophia says, yeah, but daddy's Ephesians are broken. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's because uh, it's actually falling out of my Bible. But yeah, we'll try and keep daddy's Ephesians in the book today. Um, I don't know if you've given it much thought lately, but um, why do you participate here at church? I mean, what is it that actually brings you here? If you're probably the average person, you might get one, maybe two days off a week. And you spend a good part of two hours on one of those days off to come here. To sing songs and to be silent and to listen to the word of God read to you and preached. And then we take communion and eat a meal. Why? Why do you do that? Is it because... I don't know, maybe you're coerced by a spouse or a friend. Uh, Do you think it's something that you're supposed to do? Or is it life-giving or inspiring in some way? No, please don't get up and leave. I know I've raised some good points why you shouldn't come. But um, I I promise I'm going to go somewhere with that. It's just kind of a weird thing to do when you only have a couple days off a week. But this year, our, our church is going to be taking a major step in maturity together as we move from a church plant to a member church, to a partnership church. And we're going to be talking about the details of what all that means at our annual meeting, which is next Sunday. Uh, But long story short is that we're going through a process of solidifying who we are as a church through official partnership classes and electing leaders and budgets and constitutions and all that good stuff. Not because it's all that much fun, but because we want to create a firm foundation for us and for generations that aren't even represented in this room. The people that will come after us years and years to come. And I can think of no better book to live in and under as we're going through this process than the book of Ephesians. Last week, uh, we introduced Ephesians by focusing on the first two verses. And if you missed it, I want to refer you to the podcast because there's a lot of uh, of great information in there. It's a marginal sermon, but great information about um, where we're going as a church and what this book is about. But here's a quick recap. One of the important observations we made last week is that Ephesians is one of Paul's most unique letters. Uh, For example, when he writes to the Corinthians or the Romans or the Galatians or the Philippians or the Colossians, Paul is writing in response to some kind of issues or questions that those churches have. So he's writing uh, from a reactionary stance. and, And therefore, much of what he has to say in those letters is dictated by the questions that he's getting. But this letter to Ephesians is different. There's no particular issue, seemingly, that he's writing to combat or or some kind of crisis that he's trying to to put out. This letter to the Ephesians is uh, is a chain letter that was written to the seven churches in Asia. At least that's one of the major theories. And um, after just a a few centuries, it became known as as the, the book to Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians. And this letter is a powerful and concise vision of what the church really is underneath the surface, of what the church really can be. Ephesians is a letter that tells us what God thinks about the church. And as we read it and study it and meditate on it and apply it, I hope that will do more than just inform us. But I hope that it will form us in the character of Jesus. 
Now, I mentioned last week that there's a standard way that in the ancient world that they would write letters, just like there's a standard way that we, we write letters. So if I'm writing a letter to Josh, I write, Dear Josh, how are you doing? Greetings, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the body of the letter, and then I say, Love your brother, Chris, and I put who it's from. Well, in the ancient world, you always put who it was from first. So Paul it was from Paul. And you put who it's to next. So Paul to the... Uh, to the Ephesians, right? And then he put a, you put a, a, a greeting. And then normally there would be some kind of thanksgiving or a blessing or a prayer. So this letter to the Ephesians starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So from that introduction, we learn that this letter is from Paul, and Paul is modified by two details. First, he's an apostle. That means he's authorized. He's authorized by God to speak for God. So whatever he says and writes as an apostle is not just some guy's best ideas, but it's, it, it carries with it the authority of God. And at the same time that he's an apostle, he's, also no, he's only an apostle because he... Is made one by the will of God. By the will of God. God made him an apostle. It's not because he's trying to boast or to give himself some kind of high position. And then he's writing to the saints or holy ones or the church, the faithful. And both of those terms, the saints and, the ch- and faithful, are modified by the term in Christ. So we are only the church or, or saints and we're only faithful because we're in Christ. Paul's apostleship and our saintship and our faithfulness are realities, not because of we're such great people or we're so good looking or especially uh, awesome or anything like that. It's because we are found in Christ. And then Paul modifies the standard greeting. Normally it would be, hey, greetings. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What an introduction. And we spent the whole message last week on that introduction. Now, remember how I told you in the ancient world, there's a standard way to do letters, right? You would have who it's from, who it's to, a greeting, which was grace to you and peace. And then there's supposed to be this thanksgiving. I thank God for you, and I pray for you. That, that's the standard way you would do it. In fact, um, if you're looking at Ephesians right now, um, you could just move over to Philippians. <clears throat> Check it out. Here's the standard way. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's who it's from. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. That's who it's to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greeting. And then he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. There's the thanksgiving. And offer a, a prayer to you for you. So that's Philippians. Same thing in Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are Colossae, and grace to you in peace. And then he says, I thank God for you. And he says a prayer for them. And you can move over to 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians, and skip 1 Timothy because it doesn't do it, but 2 Timothy does it. Galatians doesn't do it because Galatians, Paul's just ticked off. And he says, I'm Paul, you're Galatians. Why? Who bewitched you? But anyway, we'll get to that at a different time. <clears throat> So that's the standard way you would write a letter in the ancient world. But if you notice, Ephesians is quite different. So you have who it's from, who it's to, the greeting. And then from verses 3 through 14, there's, there's not this, hey, I'm thankful for you and let me pray for you. That's in Ephesians, but it doesn't start until verse 15. So it's weird because there's this big chunk of text 
in between those normal uh, steps of the letter. From verses 3 through 14, there is this chunk of scripture that's unusual. It stands out. And it's nothing short of worship. It's an explosion of praise. Remember I said that this letter is not Paul writing in response to a crisis. It's Paul writing what I think is the letter he always wanted to write. It's what he really, really wants people to know. I can almost imagine him in a Roman prison praying for the church and longing for them to know how much God loves them, wanting them to grasp the magnitude of who God made them to be, who Jesus says they are, and what kind of life we can have in the Spirit. Would you please stand with me as we read the epistle of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I want you to try two things. One is, and if you're comfortable, close your eyes. One is, uh, imagine Paul's excitement as this outburst takes place. Second, it was very rare in the ancient world that you would write your own letters. In fact, uh, in Galatians, Paul makes a big deal of it because he says, look with uh, what large letters I write. You know, he's writing in his own hand. So most likely he has someone like an assistant that's dictating all this. Imagine trying to dictate all of this stuff. Okay? So I imagine him, he starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then where that thanksgiving should be, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of all God's possession to the praise of his glory. Father, what an amazing explosion of praise. I pray, Lord, that in that gigantic, um, worshipful prose, you would speak to us. That you would speak to us through Paul. That whatever it is, you want us, your church, to know and to, to accept and to believe and to embrace and to live. Lord, that you would imprint it on our hearts and on our minds. 
To us, it seems like a bunch of words that are strange in their meaning and their context. I pray that you would unfold that for us, Lord. Not just information, but change. Help us to see each other and the world and ourselves as you see us. Amen. You may be seated. What you can't see in that English translation is that verses 3 through 14 are actually one gigantic Greek sentence. 202 words without any punctuation. It's a grammarian's nightmare. In fact, one, one person, uh, Norden, called it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever found in the Greek language. I think he's a little, being a little bit skeptical there. But the medium of this long sentence, all 202 words, I think, the medium, if it's at all ugly, which I actually don't think it is, I think it, it's trumped by the message. This is a spontaneous, heartfelt, instructive worship. Listen to what some commentators have said about these verses. One is struck by the fullness of its words, of its liturgical majesty, and its perceptible rhythm from the beginning to end. Another says, this rhapsodic adoration, I like that, is comparable to the overture of an opera, which contains successive melodies that are to follow. So this person likens it to almost a musical prelude that teases out what's going to come out in full throughout the rest of the book. Bruce Milne comments, Paul is on his knees here. He's bursting out in praise. Now, not to belabor the point, but isn't it telling that if Paul is writing this letter on his own initiative, if there's one thing he really wants the church to know, and he doesn't have to write in response to any crap going on in those churches, like he just gets to say whatever he wants to say, isn't it telling then that he doesn't give us, first and foremost, a list of rules? Isn't it telling that he doesn't give us, first and foremost, a systematic theology? Or ten steps to a a great smile and a new life. Or seven principles to success. Paul is writing the letter he's always wanted to write. What the, he wants the church to know more than anything. And what does he do? He starts with worship. With worship. Before being confronted by Jesus and converted and called an apostle, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. This guy knew Hebrew. He knew the Hebrew scriptures, and he thought in Hebrew thinking. And this outburst of praise is very similar to a Hebrew form of praise called the Barakah. In Hebrew scriptures, the Barakah was a statement of praise to God about who God is. So here's an example from Genesis 14. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Or another example from 1 Kings. Blessed be the Lord, or blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed all his good promise. So these blessed bees are, are these Barakah statements, these blessings to God. Now, Paul takes this Barakah idea, this, this statement of blessing to God, and he puts a Christian twist on it. Because it's not just bless God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or bless God who brought you out of Egypt. It's blessed be God, the father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, Christ is the center of his thinking, of his worship. And even this, this praise be to God is praise be to God because you are the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why else praise Him? Praise Him because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What the heck does that mean? What is a spiritual blessing? Like, is that something that you can't see? Well, not at all. Paul's not really into this contrast between material and physical. Sometimes we read that into the Bible. That's not really what's going on here. There's no dichotomy between physical and spiritual. In fact, if you remember uh, your Old Testament, the first spiritual gift ever given was given to a construction worker. This guy named Bezalel, and God filled him with the Holy Spirit to do what? To build the tabernacle. Right? So the very physical, the, the first gift of the Spirit was to do something very physical, to build a house of worship. The spiritual blessings Paul is talking about are blessings mediated through the Spirit. That's, that's the foundation of what that means. And those blessings are mentioned in the verses that follow. So the spiritual blessings are our election, our adoption, our redemption, our forgiveness... A spiritual blessing is that we've been given the knowledge of God's eternal plans. And it goes on and on in verses 3 through 14. Those spiritual blessings in Christ are listed there. And it says that these blessings, these spiritual blessings are in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Does that mean that we have to wait till we're dead to experience them? Or does it mean we have to wait till the kingdom comes, till heaven comes to earth to experience them? When Paul speaks of the heavenly realms or the heavenlies, he's not so much talking about a place. It's not like we're here in Bellingham, but our spiritual blessings are caught up in Seattle. There's you know, the snow, the trucks couldn't get up. So our spiritual blessings are down in Seattle, but we're here in Bellingham, so somehow we've got to get to those spiritual blessings. It, when he's talking about the spiritual blessings being in the heavenly places, we're not talking about places like geography. In fact, in most other eras of history, people understood that the earth and the spiritual realm sometimes overlapped. There were thin places. Um, it's only in the past few hundred years, and mainly in the, in the West, thank you, modernism, that we've lost touch with any world besides our own. So mechanized, so materialistic now, that conceptions of, of spiritual realms or other realms of reality are relegated to science fiction or some parody of religion. But what Paul in his original audience understood, and I guess what I'm trying to convey here, is that the heavenlies are not so much another place as another reality. In the heavenlies, Jesus reigns. He's in charge. So if our spiritual blessings are in Christ, they are incorruptible. Nobody can mess with them. You can't take them away. Uh, it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, right? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in or steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where neither moth or, or moths or rust uh, destroy and where thieves cannot break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what does that mean? We're supposed to uh, set up an off-realm bank account and uh, we have so this bank in the heavenlies? Uh, no. Uh, what Jesus is talking about there in the Sermon on the Mount is, that, uh, is another way of speaking about God. Oftentimes people would say heaven to speak of God as a kind of a respectful way around that. So what he's saying is store up for yourselves treasures in God. Take your very earthly, physical money and resources and invest them in kingdom work, in God's agenda, 
And they'll last. And they'll last. First century Jewish people believed in two ages. There's the present age and the age to come. They believed that when the age to come came, God's realm, or the heavenlies, would come to earth. And God would be king. Okay? Two ages. Age present age and the age to come. And they believe someday the age to come would come. And with it, God would be king. What Christians believe is that when Jesus became incarnate, when he became a person, a man, the, the age to come began to come. It actually began breaking into our world. And obviously, the age to come, or the heavenlies, or the kingdom, isn't here fully yet, because the world is still pretty screwed up. Emily's still sick. That's See? That's not perfect. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis likens it to uh, when the dead of winter, you're in the dead of winter, and everything's frosted over and snow-covered, and the first signs of spring begin to break through. The first blade of grass sticks up through the snow. The first buds on the cherry trees come out. And you know when that happens, winter's as good as dead, and summer's coming. But in the midst of that early spring, you're still going to get the occasional snowstorm and freeze, and some of those plants are going to die. So we're in that springtime. Because Jesus became incarnate, we believe that we're in the springtime, that winter's dead, summer's coming, but we still have to, to deal with some of the, uh, the storms of life. So let's get back to these blessings that Paul is praising God for. First, Paul is elated. One of the first things he talks about is that God chose you and I before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, full of love. And that goes hand in hand with the next phrase, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Which, by the way, he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. That's in Jesus. I mean, the, the stuff just rolls off the tongue. This particular passage, right? Being chosen before the foundation of the world, bring, being predestined. particular passage uh, is one that everybody has an opinion on. People generally have very strong, sometimes even visceral reactions to that idea of election and predestination. And either you hate it and will do anything to argue it, your way out of it, or you fully embrace it and, and love it. And it just seems like um, you know, everybody's got a strong opinion about this one. But one of the things I want to do is recognize that in a room like this, there's going to be people, maybe sitting right next to you, who have a very different opinion than you. And that is quite okay. That's quite okay. In fact, as we approach this text, and I want to argue, as we approach any text in Scripture, I think to do it justice and to be thinkers about this and to have intellectual integrity, we need to suspend those preconceived notions that we brought in this evening and let the text stand for itself. After all, it doesn't really matter if you hate the idea of election and predestination or if you love the idea. Because what you think about it doesn't make it any less real or any more real. Your opinion and my opinion is not the place to start when we're looking at Scripture. The place to start is with the recognition that you and I and every person who lived after Adam and Eve are fallen. We all have a bent 
towards sin and rebellion towards God, right? We each have an independent streak that tempts us towards selfishness and self-preservation rather than trusting God. And there's all kinds of spectrum on, you know, total depravity and how bad things really are. Uh, Have you ever met a perfect person? Okay, that just speaks for itself. We, as a human race, have a problem, right? We constantly have a problem trusting that God has our best in mind. We can't escape it. In fact, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says clearly that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and we're by nature children of wrath, but God. Oh, two of the greatest words in the, in the whole Bible, but James is going to get to that so uh, in several weeks. I'll save that, but... When we read this about God choosing people before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, we need to take this, not as Paul's best idea, but as revelation, right? As God telling us, hey, I'm sorry you feel one way or the other about this. Here's how things are. We don't really get to argue about it. Remember, Paul is bursting out in praise here. He's praising God for this thing. So he must think that election and predestination are some pretty wonderful doctrines, some pretty wonderful ideas. He's saying, church, rejoice. Before the earth even existed, before you existed, God chose you. Now, that may make you feel special, uh, but the point is that he chose you even before you could be special. If you're special at all, it's only because he chose you. That's very wonderful and very humbling at the same time. But, you say, I'm so glad Paul is happy about election and predestination. And I guess I'm kind of happy about it too since I'm here. And I guess that sounds good for me. But what about other people? What about those God didn't choose? Or what about free will? What is all this talk about predestination? What about those scriptures that seem to indicate whoever trusts in Jesus can be saved? Jesus himself said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What about that? This is one of those mysteries of scripture. Somehow God choosing and our response are not mutually exclusive. Charles Spurgeon famously quipped, At the door to heaven there's a sign that reads, Whosoever may will, may come. Right? And, and then he says, on the, on the inside there's a sign that reads, Chosen from the foundation of the world. It's a strange mystery in scripture. But I think even in quoting Spurgeon and going down that road, I'm taking us down a road that is treacherous. See, throughout history... Various movements in the church have built whole systems of theology around little texts like this. These systems of theology have then blossomed into whole theories of how salvation works. The term predestination only occurs six times in the New Testament. In two of those six times, it's in the same context, so they're used in the same sentence or in the same idea. So you could say the term predestination only deals with four different instances in the New Testament. Hey, guess what? It's not the main point of the Bible. It's not the main point of being a Christian. Some groups have put so much weight on these few instances of these words that they feel and have built their foundation of their theology on these few words that 
it, to lose it would mean to lose your whole structure. Uh, Charles Hansen was talking to me today, said it's like a Jenga game. And you, 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 you have that theological block, you pull it out, and the whole thing crumbles down. And what happens when you have your system built on a few instances like this is that you, then you have to defend it vehemently. And you have to start to read your ideas into other scriptures to help support this one. I think that's a dangerous thing to do with scripture, to read back in. So a few observations might help. First, who's doing the electing here anyway? Who's doing the electing? It's God who makes himself known to us, not only as God in a general term, but as the Father, as the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not fate or destiny or the universe, as some people say. It's not some impersonal force doing this thing. This is the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the Father, the Lord. And then let's look at why he's the, why God is electing to make us holy and blameless and full of love. It's a wonderful idea. It's a great thing. And he chose us and determined that we would be adopted into his family. You know, in the Roman world, this was a completely revolutionary idea, but in the Roman world, the head of the household could adopt a child or even an adult, and when they went through that adoption process, that adopted son or daughter would have full rights to the name of the head of the household, to the inheritance, to the protection. So when Paul is using this language of adoption, he's saying that you and I are adopted into God's family. That he is our father, and we are every bit as much a son and daughter as any biological or Jesus the Christ even. Third, what is not so clear in English is stunningly clear in Greek. Paul is talking about the church being elected. The church being predestined in Jesus. You know, so often we turn these passages into passages about personal salvation. Probably because, if you're like me, we're self-centered. We want to make sure it's all good with us. That's not at all what these passages are talking about. This is in the plural. This is about the church. The whole doctrine of election is not something that started with John Calvin or St. Augustine or Paul. It started with God. And God elected or chose Abraham. And his family, plural, right? And why did he choose Abraham and his family? Because he loved them and nobody else? No, he said to Abraham, I'm blessing you to be a blessing to the world. And what happened to Abraham and his family? They became the people of Israel. They became the people of Israel. Our scripture reading earlier from Deuteronomy that Meg read, it was no accident. Did you notice how God says that Israel was chosen by him, not because they were so mighty and numerous, but because he loved them. God chooses the weak and the foolish and the poor and the mourners and the meek to do great things. So if we're chose before the foundation of the world and predestined to adoption in God's family through Jesus, then we are to be blessings to the world. We're to live lives of holiness and love for the glory of God. What if, what if we've been chosen and destined to be the church for the sake of the world? See, so often we use this language and it gets wrapped up in, am I in or am I out? Am I safe or not? But what if 
God chose the church for the sake of the world. What if people might come to know and honor God because of what God does in and through us? The church in the world. You know, in the end of Isaiah's prophecy and in the end of the book of Revelation, you see this image of a new, a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom, of God's kingdom coming to earth. And what do you see happening there? Many different nations coming to worship. Many different tribes and tongues and people. And people that you might look at and say, there's no way they're in. You know, who is in or out, whatever that means, that's not our concern. Thank God. That's not up to you and me. So if we're rejoicing that God has given us the privilege of being the church, there's a responsibility tied with that too. To be a blessing. To reflect God's goodness and character to the world. And so we return to Paul's point. To worship and praise This text about election and predestination, this text is not about doctrine. It's not some pragmatic text in the practical sense of, okay, well, what's the practical application, Chris? I want three steps when I leave here today. I'd have to make something up, actually, in verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14 are not pragmatic in that sense. They are a reason to worship. Why do we come together on Sundays and sing and pray and submit to Scripture and share the sacraments? Because that might be the most real and important thing we do all week. Because we need to be reminded that we're chosen by the Father through the Son, adopted into the family, and called to reflect the family resemblance for the good of the world, to the praise and the glory of His grace. Amen. Father, I'm so thankful. Uh, for this incredible mystery. And it is a mystery, Lord. I I pray for freedom in our hearts, Lord, and as a congregation. I pray for freedom to be okay with things not being neat and tidy. Lord, help us to resist the temptation to create false boxes and whole systems that exclude other people because we want to somehow grasp the Almighty God and your plans. I'm so thankful for the revelation you have given us that in some mysterious way, we are here this evening. We may think we've wandered in on our own volition. But you've called us together. And I thank you that you just don't call us or preserve us for novelty's sake. But you've given us great responsibility and wonderful work to, to perform, Lord. That you, you've called us to join you in your rescue mission to the world. To love people in your name. To let them know that they're not alone and not an accident. Lord, help us to believe that. 
Help us to know how loved we are by you. Lord, I pray for those this evening who are just having a hard time believing that this includes them. Spirit, touch hearts this evening. Lord, on the other spectrum, maybe there's some here tonight that are having a hard time believing that this could be for anyone else. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that see what you see when we look at other people and hearts full of compassion. Help us to see what could be in others and in ourselves, not, not, not what is. I'm thankful that all things are possible through you and that you spared no expense to rescue us and to redeem this world. Amen.